Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. And welcome. This is the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions for critical times. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Good to have you with us today because we're going to talk about an issue that has been front of mind for so many people, well, for generations now. I, I submit probably since the mid-1960s when uh, when publicly funded health care uh, all of a sudden came in vogue in Canada. Medicare has gone under so many different names. Uh, something that I think a lot of us took for granted for the longest time, maybe most of us still do, I guess. Uh, but it's transitioning right now because it's become a problem. Uh, it's not as effective as as it used to be. Uh, there was a time when I think many Canadians thought that this was the best healthcare system in the world. It isn't anymore. Uh, there have been discussions with ministers of health, with prime ministers and premiers about how to to improve the the situation and the methodologies. I don't know that we move the yardsticks a whole lot. And it's becoming front of mind once again as health ministers are asking the federal government for more money to try to improve what they call a broken system. Joining us to talk about this is uh, somebody who has been a very, very strong advocate for improvements to this system and being open-minded about what those options and what those uh, solutions may be. Joining us on the podcast today is Dr. Jason Perfetto, the Director of Family Medicine and Chair of Clinical Skills and MD Admissions at McMaster University. Doctor, good to talk with you again. It's been a while. My pleasure, Bill. Good to see you. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this because we're hearing it once again. The, the provincial ministers of health are, are starting to, to move towards Ottawa once again. I know this kind of got shoved to the side, I guess, because of uh, the economic crises that so many problems are causing these days. I, I'm not suggesting the, the, metal, or the economic crisis is over, uh, but people are now starting to look at issues. And, and health care is always going to be at the top of that list. Uh, and, of course, as you might expect, and you and I have had this discussion before, uh, the provincial ministers are saying, give us more money. And uh, the federal government, of course, is saying, well, explain to us exactly how it's going to make the system better, which I think is a very valid question. Uh, Is throwing more money at the system going to make it better, doctor? No, in short, it will not. The the growing problem with the, the, you know, the growing problem with the healthcare system in Ontario, to me, is rather simple, but also complex. So the main problem is access to care. You know, you have to appreciate The vast majority of people will experience medical care in Ontario through primary care, which is family medicine. Mm -hmm. That's the vast majority of people. And then as you go up in the tiers of specialization, it'll be fewer and fewer people. So only a minority of people, for example, will interact with a pediatric neurosurgeon. The vast majority of people in the country, and this is the main political talking point, are interacting with the healthcare system through family medicine. And here... Here in lines, what I call one of the most interesting conundrums and paradoxes that we see is that if you throw more money at the system, if you graduate more medical students, you will see more family doctors coming out. But a family doctor isn't necessarily a comprehensive five day per week running a clinic, seeing patients, family doctor. And effectively, what we need in this province is an increased primary care workforce. Can I just, I want to go off on a side road here for a second, because you just touched on something here, and just a question popped in my head that I know we've talked about before, but given the circumstances we are right now, is, is, is medicine an attractive proposition for people these days? I mean, are young people gravitating to this? Do they want to be doctors these days? Or are they seeing the headlines and seeing the confrontations going on politically and simply saying, ah, that's not for me. I don't, I don't want to go there. Well, 
The, the problem is individuals don't appreciate when they apply to medical school, they're applying to medical school. They're not necessarily applying to a career in medicine, which could be 30, 40 years of, of actual primary service work in the community. So I think part of the challenge is the insight for applicants to medical school programs is very short-sighted. And a lot of the talk is about medical school, which, and fair enough, I mean, individuals in their late teens and early 20s who are applying, finishing university, getting their marks together, that's what they're looking at. They're looking at medical school as the next stage in their life. However, you will be best positioned, herein lies another paradox, you will be best positioned to make a decision about whether or not family medicine or medicine is for you when you're in it. You're not going to be in it until you're in it. And otherwise, you're going to be trying to forecast what it's going to be like. So to answer your question, I still think it's pretty popular to go into medicine. I mean, at McMaster, we get over 5,000 applicants and less than 3% of them actually become admitted to the program. The challenge is that when family medicine graduates graduate or any graduate, when they go into practice community and they start working five days, six days per week, that's where you start to see a bit of the frustration. Uh, I'm looking at the the student population at McMaster, and especially at the med medical school there, and, and McMaster Medical Center, and the affiliations that's going on there. A quick read on on current news, I guess, that we just found out yesterday. Uh, the federal government is now putting a cap on the number of uh, four students who can apply to university. Uh, talk to us about the impact that could have on, on not just McMaster but other medical schools. I, I I don't think the problem lies in the amount of applicants that we have to medical school. And I don't even think it really matters in terms of the amount of doctors or people that are coming into the system that could potentially practice. And this is like, it's, it's a really important point that needs to be emphasized because what you need in medicine is individuals that will plant their feet and actually work for, for decades. For de and they, that might sound daunting to a lot of people. And I can tell you, when I talk to a lot of medical school, uh, medical students or graduating new family doctors, and when we get into these discussions about business and longevity in the profession, it is very, very difficult. So I think the input is important, the amount of people that come into the system, but not nearly as much as people think. The output is important. And again, not nearly as much as people think. The, the most important, the most critical stage is the amount of people that plant their feet, practice, and actually... Uh, stay around for decades at a time. I, I often joke with students, like if you think about diverse or um, underrepresented populations that need healthcare, and I say, what do you think they need? Oh, they need more, we need more courses in medical school or we meet, I say, no, what they need is a phone number to call so they can make an appointment in a timely manner and actually see a doctor. That's what they need. And that is a workforce. Uh which which gets us into the idea of, of as you say, first of all, where those people are going to go, uh, and in and in what discipline they're going to go to. There's been a, a growing concern for I guess almost decades now, doctor, about once people do get into medical school and make that decision and and want to dedicate themselves to, to medicine, uh, to get into family practice, which you say is is first of all the, that's the the essence of what medical school or what medical interaction is going to be for most of us, but it's also the portal for, for going down that list to, to specializations, uh, whether it's uh, orthopods, whatever the case might be. Uh, we don't have enough family doctors. It's, uh, uh, who's, whose responsibility is it for that to change? I mean, the government says we want to encourage it. 
you know, encourage it by throwing more money at it. I mean, governments uh, are not supposed to be able to create jobs. They don't create doctors, uh, but there has to be an environment. And I think an education process for people to understand exactly how important family medicine is in this system. Fantastic question. I, I particularly like the question that the focus on whose responsibility is it to push change in terms of the amount of family doctors that we see in the in the community and in the province actually working. This is something that I've debated a lot. I actually believe, and this gets into a little bit of political theory too, I believe the responsibility lies on the individuals that are going to medical school and the individuals that are, are graduating. And I'll tell you what I mean. So what ends up happening is we have a lot of people in early medical school that say, even the people that apply to medical school, everyone says the right thing. Everyone has a perfect position on what the communities need, on what communities are underserviced, on how important primary care is, and how important it is to actually see patients on a regular basis. Early medical school, everyone sees that. And then what ends up happening? As medical school goes along and individuals start to see different aspects of medical life, they might become a little bit less interested personally in going into family medicine because it might be a little bit harder, a bit more community-based. And for a lot of people, it's, it's a pretty challenging profession. But that's the challenge, is that as medical students early on, if we're saying that this is important, we are also accountable and responsible to fulfill that need. So I would say it starts it starts at, at the center, the ethos of medical school and the medical profession. We're going into this. We need to be somewhat selfish and also somewhat selfless and understand that our communities really require us. I practice family medicine here because I know individuals in this community do need this service. And I take great pride in, in providing and delivering it as does my father and as does Dr. Sabateri who work with me alongside me. We're here five days a week and we see as many people as we can in a timely fashion. We really try to do our best. I think we need to see a little bit more of that, which, you know, forgive me for saying is a little bit of an older school mentality. Well, and therein lies the problem. And I'll ask you maybe a little inside baseball question here, doctor. Uh, is money a factor? I mean, you know, you know, like you, you decide you get admitted, uh, you know, student ABC gets elected or admitted to, to medical school. Uh, they don't say, yeah, I want to be going to family practice. But I mean, once you're there, you're exposed to, to, to uh, different disciplines. Uh, some of them make a lot more money uh, on, on a pretty regular basis because of the cost of those situations, whether it's an orthopedic surgeon, an eye doctor, whatever the case might be. Not unlike law school. I mean, you know, people that apply to law school don't say, yeah, I'm going to go into family law. No, I'm going to go into corporate law. You make that decision as you evolve and as you go through that that education process. Uh, how much emphasis is on family medicine in that process to expose uh, those students at that point uh, to the benefits and to the need for, for more family doctors? The, one of the challenges, so there is variation in salaries per discipline in medicine right along. So you might see an average salary to be a little bit higher, for example, in general surgery than in pediatrics, than in psychiatry. So you see a variation. However, it's it's also a bit of an illusion because the primary predictor of whether or not you make money in this profession in, in medicine is actually related to how much you work. So those individuals who, who generally work more and provide more service, they end up doing very, very well. 
Individuals who work a lot less tend to make a lot less money. And it is proportionate to the number of hours and the number of service that you put in. There was a, the Toronto Star uh, years back had released the top 100 billers or the, the top 100 doctors who made money in Ontario. And what you a few of them were fraudulent, but the vast majority were not. And what you saw were there were certain doctors, for example, gastroenterologists that were making a lot of money, but they were also working, you know, 70, 80 hour weeks doing colonoscopies left, right and center. And I can tell you from experience, they these people have picked up a lot of cancers for a lot of people and getting them in in a very timely way and providing great service. And as a result, they made more money, sure, but they also provided a, a fantastic service to the community. If you do a referral, for example, through the hospital system for certain things, it might take you six to nine months to get something done. When in the community, some of these people who are seeing patients very regularly, making a lot of money, they'll get them in within weeks. And it's a big, big difference. But this is one of the, the problems I've had, and it's been a bone that I've been picking on for quite some time. Uh, as soon as governments get into to evaluations, I, first of all, I, I bristle at it because they, they're, they're the, you're sometimes the, some of the worst offenders in situations like that. But you can't make a list and say, here are the top earning doctors uh, without asking, I, I was going to say the follow-up question, maybe the more important question is what have they done? to earn that salary? What have they done in the last 12 months? How many lives have they saved? How many cancers have they done? How many, how many new hips have they put in so people can go back to work? That, that's, that's never part of that equation, but it's very, very relevant to it. Yeah, and, and it's interesting in medicine because generally speaking, this is not a scalable profession in that I, I am only, I am only limit, I am limited to what I can do in my practice. It's not that I own multiple practices and doctors are working under my name per se. So what I do is what I actually do here. And similarly with individuals that are doing colonoscopies or people in eye clinics, seeing eyes and doing surgeries and all sorts of things. There's a lot of professions where you can scale, you know, if you own five franchises of a certain business you can you can scale quite a bit and not be present and make a lot of money, right? So a lot of what we do is a service-based industry. It is directly related to the amount of patients that you're seeing and services you're providing. And I think that's a very important point. But the, the problem is that when you look at that compared to what our medical student population is doing, I think it's it's challenging. It's challenging. And especially these days, like we're getting medical students coming into our program. They are they are brilliant, top marks, very, very smart but then they lack certain life experience that an individual with more experience is better better aimed to face. Like the, the adversity, the work experience, especially in the customer service industry where you're seeing people, you're talking to people, you're you're seeing individuals that are upset and you're you're solving problems and all of that. It makes a big difference going forward. It's it's a conundrum to say the least. I, I got to ask you to comment because you and I haven't talked for a few months, but and since then there have been some some changes, especially here in Ontario, when it comes to well billing practices and and the incorporation of more uh, more private healthcare into the system uh, to try to alleviate some of the backlogs, which is a laudable goal, etc. Uh, but you've heard the pushback. I certainly have, of course, doing the podcasts uh, and back on the radio show too, from people that are saying it creates an inequity. Uh, that if I want to go and 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 have uh, a knee replacement, for instance, I can go through the system and uh, the hospital or wherever I go will bill the province X number of dollars. If I went and done it privately through a clinic, it's a different billing system. In other words, it's more, 
Uh, and and the accusation, as you say, a lot of people are making right now is, well, that's their profit margin. If you kept that out, healthcare would be less expensive. Is is that a legitimate statement? I, I there, so this this is a point that's largely misunderstood. So there's privatization of healthcare. That's one thing, and then there's privatized delivery of healthcare. So if, for example, you in find doctor that too many people conflate those two things. One hundred percent, absolutely. I mean, I bet you most people don't even know the difference. So here, here's the thing, is that if you want a colonoscopy in Hamilton, there are clinics that are owned by the gastroenterologist themselves that will do the colonoscopy. These are the people that pay their own bills. They, they manage the building. They manage their own staff. But it all goes through OHIP. So there's no inequity. In fact, it's, it's an improved access. Everyone can still go there. Every single patient with a health card can go there. So that's that's number one. And and that's what the province has actually tried. They're trying to do more of, especially with surgical services, because right now there's certain limitations. Like, so for example, to check the bladder, a cystoscopy, it has to go through a hospital. It cannot go through a private clinic, even if it goes through OHIP, and they might expand that. And then there's private healthcare. And private healthcare violates the Canada Health Act. So I cannot open a clinic where someone comes to see me for knee pain and I charge them personally, that is in violation of the Canada Health Act. And in, in Ontario, we generally speaking don't do that. There's a there's a few loopholes, but the majority of our care, like the vast majority of our care goes through OHIP, but it might be delivered through private. Like my clinic over here, the room I'm in right now is not owned by a hospital. It, it, you know, we, we own and operate this space. We have created part of the infrastructure of the healthcare system, but everything I do is through OHIP and, and is through the Ontario, you know, health insurance mm -hmm. billing, if that makes sense. So, and again, I think that seems to be what's, what's coloring. I think the debate and oftentimes is, is a lot of the time, I think the public, and, and, and I would also submit some of the public officials who are debating this, don't fully understand what the system, how the system is supposed to work or how it has worked. Uh, are, are there jurisdictions that, that we can look at uh, that say, hey, these guys, they're, they're doing it better. Uh, you know, We don't want to do what the states are doing. They're still having a debate about public versus private in many jurisdictions down there. Uh, I hear places like the UK and Scandinavian countries that seem to be doing it more efficiently than we are. Can we learn from other areas, other jurisdictions? Yeah, I, I would learn from certain jurisdictions within Ontario. So, for, for example, here's an example. I'm in Hamilton. If you want an MRI of your knee and you want to go through a hospital, that's where the majority of MRI machines mm -hmm. are. It'll take you six to 12 months, depending on when you put it in. Six to 12 months. There are privately owned, OHIP funded MRI uh, clinics in Ontario, in and around the Mississauga, Toronto region that will get you in within weeks. It's all built through OHIP. The difference is it's not run by an institution. It's owned privately by a clinic. It's still read by a radiologist. It's still built through OHIP, but the access is a lot better. And, and so, you know, like the, the colonoscopy, just to keep things simple, the colonoscopy, colonoscopy example is a very good one. There are clinics that will take my patients within days or weeks at a maximum if I'm concerned about colon cancer. They do a colonoscopy, they find it. They get referred to a surgeon, they get surgery, and the, the colon cancer is mitigated largely, and then there's other treatments. But that time is very important. If I do a referral through a hospital, 
These doctors that I deal with in the hospital, these doctors are fantastic, but the process, the administrative bureaucracy that they have to go through to get something timely booked in an endoscopy suite takes months. It could take months or it could be a, a big headache for them. That, that is the problem. The administrative bloating of our institutions is a major, major problem. I would learn right from the grassroots level in Ontario, and I would allow more privatization of publicly funded healthcare to occur. And I, I really think it would solve a lot of problems, assuming you have the people power to do it. Uh, you wrote a book, uh, uh, I guess it was 2017 that you published, and anecdotal stories about the healthcare system, et cetera, how efficient or not inefficient it was. Uh, if you were to do a volume two of it this year, doctor, uh, would it be more optimistic or would you be concerned about the, the fact that we haven't made improvements? Where are we now as to, as to where we were when, when you wrote that book back in 2017? So it's a mix. I believe in an absolute way, the amount of primary care we have in Ontario, and I mean, this is backed by numbers, has decreased. However, I think what you're seeing is a lot of the individuals that are in family medicine, for example, are, are absolute soldiers. They, they work, they serve their community, and I think they are setting very, very positive examples. And I think a lot of them are taking great pride in what they're doing. I think we need to see a shift and it's a cultural generational shift that needs to happen to individuals and practices like that. Absolute numbers are not as favorable as I would like to see. I mean, there's a lot of immigration. There's major changes in the healthcare system. There's major generational differences, but there is a core group of people that are delivering medicine. There, there are some doctors, I mean, there's some fantastic people in this province who, they. I know one individual lives in Brantford and he flies out to Northern Ontario two weeks per uh, uh, two months or one week per month. And he does some specialized care in like rural communities and he flies back and there's individuals that work in rural ERs and a lot of people locally, like my dad is going on to almost 40 years of practice and he does not want to stop. And there are other people like that in the Stony Creek and Hamilton area. I think these are the champions of the healthcare system. I think they provide a great service. And I think they're it, we are fortunate to have people like that that we can look up to. For somebody such as yourself and your dad, uh, who's been doing it for so long, and and so many others in the in the industry right now, uh, that are dedicated to this because of the cause and because of the need within community, are, are you troubled by what seems to be, uh, I think, a very troubling uh, growth right now of skepticism of science and of medicine? Uh, that when you tell somebody something and say, "This is what I, I don't believe you." Uh, it's always been there in, in some way, shape or form, probably exploded because of the pandemic and, and the vaccination, anti-vax thing, et cetera, but it's got, it's still here. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that it's growing. If you look at some of the comments, a lot of people just don't believe or rely on science anymore. Uh, and, and medicine is based on science, isn't it? We know. So when you look at epistemology, the study of how we know what we know, a lot of it is not coming from books or encyclopedias that any one individual is reading. In fact, generally speaking, what, it, what ends up happening is individuals believe voices they hear that they think are credible. So the solution to this problem is if we want our population, let's talk about Ontario. If we want Ontario to believe or to trust science and medicine, we need them to listen to leaders that are credible, 
that are role models and that are actually servicing the people that they service. You know, like I, I, it's funny because this turns into full circle and you look at some ancient societies where, you know, what happens with an emperor or a dictator versus uh, a Senate and, and well disseminated information into the public forum. I really believe what needs to happen is individuals need to trust you. They need to look at the individual um, um, speaking. They need to tr they need to see them as a credible individual and they need to see them as, as people and experts that they can trust. Epistemologically, that's how you will gain trust in science through those who speak. And in the pandemic, I'm not sure if we did the best job in, in speaking and disseminating information. I mean, that's a, that's a bit more of a nuanced argument, but I think that's the way you do it. And the, the other way, the other thing with all of that is recognizing individual autonomy and giving people the right. You, you, you lead them and you allow them to make their choice, but do it in such a way that they trust what you're saying. I think one of the elements that gets lost in that discussion too is, is the way that medicine has pivoted over the years. Uh, you know, it was it wasn't that many years ago. I can remember talking to people in family medicine uh, who who just said, "Look at you know, you got a headache. This is what you're going to take. Here's the prescription. It's all it was medical. It was chemical. And and we we're we're different now. We've evolved, I think evolved for, for the better uh, to look at, at at a number of different holistic medicines and things like that. Uh, all as part of the package. It's not one or the other. It's all as a matter of combinations of of what might work better and and having an open mind. I guess is going on. Uh, a lot of people don't give the medical world, I guess, the, or the profession, the matter, the credit it deserves for, for being that, that open-minded about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting. It's been interesting. There's been so much change in the pandemic, the pandemic brought upon, like, I mean, for sure, the, this is the first time in my life. Absolutely. And I think in even my parents' life where the pandemic really brought a challenge to the way we speak, the way we trust, and the way we disseminate information. It was a, a pretty grand social experiment in how to be successful as a population and where the balance of public health versus autonomy actually lies and where it stands. And I, I, I think that was a very interesting process. There, there's a lot there's a lot to say. I mean, that, that's over the years, that's going to be dissected quite a bit. But I, I think moving forward, the most important thing is really to be able to communicate in such a way that people trust you. I'll tell you, Bill, I, I always find it interesting where like, you know, some of my patients, they'll go to the hospital and they'll see uh, like an oncologist, right? Like a cancer doctor. And the cancer doctors that I work with are, are some of the most fantastic individuals, the, the smartest people, you know, and they will say to the cancer doctor, I, 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 I'm taking all this information. Thank you very much. I would like to discuss it with my family doctor first to get his or her okay. And I always find that very interesting. Like people really do trust you. And that's that's a very you know important thing to hold and to have. So you want to make sure that you do the best with it that you possibly can. Uh, it's fascinating. And, and we could go on all afternoon on this, but uh, your dog is getting a little restless on the back and mine's going to jump off the couch too. So I think, I think our time is up here uh, for this session of it. Anyway, uh, always a pleasure, doctor, having you on the program. Thank you so much for the day. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Bill. Appreciate it. Take care. Dr. Jason Perfetto from uh, Family Medicine at McMaster University. And that's the way we see it. This is the Bill Kelly Podcast, the edition for today. Uh, you can catch us anywhere, of course, where uh, you get your podcast. And uh, until next time, take care. Bill Kelly Podcast brought to you by Wizens Law, personal injury lawyers. Listen, you didn't choose to get injured, but you can choose the right lawyer. Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 or wizenslaw.com.